Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Okay, so we have 30 minutes um, until coffee. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew, I have a question. Yeah. Um, I'm so fascinated by um, female hormones and how they work in the body in relation to meditation. Yeah. And uh, I've been watching really closely yeah. my own monthly cycle over the past two years. Mm-hmm. And there are about like what was um, seven days of intensity, now like 10 days where mm-hmm. my thought patterns are really mm-hmm. up close. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also really hard. I have to work a little bit extra hard to get to my cushion in the morning mm-hmm. during that During time. those 10 days, yeah. 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 And and like, yeah, my thoughts are much closer at mm-hmm. that time. Um, yeah, and I have like a little bit of grace around it because I know that, oh, this is that 10 days, you yeah. know? And so I'm just working with this. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't change that much, mm-hmm. right? It's like, and sometimes it's, I think, God, here, here it is. Yeah. Like, and, and off the cushion, like I'm psychopathic for 10 days, <laughs> mm-hmm. really truly, where I think, is that you thinking that or other people telling you? Wait, just let her, let her, let her. Yeah, yeah. and, and during those 10 days I think, God, like, I need meds for 10 days, uh-huh. yeah. right? But I don't need them the other 20 days. Uh-huh. I'm really okay. Yeah. And my meditation practice does help my behavior, mm-hmm. my human behavior out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like some other things that I have to do as well. Yeah. Certain social situations I can't be in. Yeah. I have to be very, very careful yeah. at that time because there's certain things about me I cannot control. Like there's no amount of meditation I think that will control some of my reactivity during that time. So it's it so so but the meditation is allowing you to see that happen. To see it happen. That's what I mean, as opposed yeah. to it being just how it is. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, like you know, my my wife Karina, she's always. Um, I love saying my wife. Like it's new because we just got married, so I'm like my wife, my wife. Um, so uh, she. Uh, when we sit sometimes, so she, her training is in chiropractic, as you know, Melissa. And um, so she's like a scientist, kind of, 
And um, so sometimes uh, after we sit together, I'm like, so how was that for you? She told, and she would always just say, chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> and the point of that is remember that everything that emerges, emerges from conditions. The conditions are multifaceted and they're always uh, from our environment and from our biology and it's all mixed up and it's impossible to try and tease those things apart. So that's why it's really important that when you are feeling really irritable that you see that there's irritability is dependent on conditions. The conditions are menstruation, your inbox, what you ate last night, the beer you had two days ago, um, like all these things, um, your environment, you know the in-laws are coming, like all these things start to create irritation. So um, you can't rule out the hormones, right? You can't rule that out. But now you're starting to see a cycle, right? And maybe that cycle Maybe through that lens, that also might explain more things. Like, oh, was that the time 20 years ago that I used to do X, Y, or Z? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, I would keep investigating that. And also, you know, that would be a good thing for, um, that would be a good conversation. Like, maybe we should split the group up and have, like, women talk together about how this manifests in their life because I can't speak as much to it. But I think Can it, facilitators, it's great to have this conversation yeah. around because that's become a lot of Totally. Yeah, like you know when I teach the riding the wave mm -hmm. and I say that moods only last five minutes? My wife is always like, that's because you're a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, can we keep going? Yes. Yeah, not going down this road. <laughs> Do you know what Karina did yesterday? Can I tell you? Can I tell you family stories? She's like, let's FaceTime at you know six a.m. or whatever. So I'm like, okay. So we FaceTimed, and she and someone came on the phone, and I didn't know who it was, and it was her, and she shaved her head. She just she just spent two years. She used to get like have like a very like dyke kind of hair for a long time, forever, and then she like really grew her hair out for the past couple of years, and then she just woke up in the morning. She's like, I'm just done with this. She went into my closet, took my clippers, and she just shaved her whole head bald, the whole thing. Whoa! Yeah. This morning. Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. That's your wife. Okay. Yeah. Okay, anyways, so, um, Sigmund Freud, maybe Molly doesn't love Sigmund Freud so much, but, um, and I know he's not so hip to study these days, um, but let me tell you why Sigmund Freud is really important. Uh, Freud was a doctor, and I think we forget that Freud was a doctor, and Freud initially was seeing people come into his office with physical symptoms that other doctors couldn't treat. Okay? He wasn't a psychiatrist. He was a doctor, physical symptoms. And he noticed that when people lay down and were really quiet and started to speak in words 
about what was going on physically for them, the symptoms changed. That was his incredible insight. Right? Um, his key idea at the beginning of his career was that there is a difference between free energy and bound energy in our minds and bodies. And that this was the source of a lot of our um, mental distress and emotional distress and relational distress. That some energies moved freely in us and some energies were bound in us. And Freud wrote, in my opinion, this distinction between free and bound energy in the mind and body represents the deepest insight we've gained up to the present into the nature of nervous energy. So this was his interesting. This was his interest. And the way he thought about this is that when we're kids, we have needs that need to be met, and we're always negotiating this. And as little kids, our needs need to be met from the outside. We don't have the resources yet to meet our needs from the inside. They need to be met from the outside. As we mature, our needs can be met internally. But before we have an ego, our needs need to be met um, from the outside world. Um, after Freud, there was a, a, um, a woman who, who developed a lot of his work named Melanie Klein. And her idea was that um, the way that a kid develops an ego is that um, the kid understands that the breast does not belong uh, to themselves. So at first, like, you know this, right? And then the breast comes in, right? And then the baby's not aware that the breast is not part of its own ecology, its own organism. The baby's omnipotent. It can make the breast happen or not. But the problem is, when this need needs to be met, and it's not met, the baby's frustrated, okay? And the baby starts crying, right? Or sometimes the opposite happens. And there's some metaphors in here you should be listening to because it's not about a literal breast necessarily. The opposite can happen too is that the mother's so on top of the baby that the breast is just shoved in the face all the time. Right? And then the baby never has the experience of being able to tolerate frustration um, because it's frustrated in a different way. Um, <clears throat> then Freud started thinking more deeply about this process, and he started um, creating a theory about the ego, which is really where we get the term ego. Um, and this is his definition of the ego. So this is our earliest working psychological definition of the ego. Um, when most of us use the term ego, I think we don't realize this is where it comes from. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, the other great thing about Freud was he could write. He was a literary person, and he could write. So, the ego is first and foremost a body ego. It is not merely a surface entity 
but it's itself a projection of a surface. The ego is a projection of its surface. So he's saying a few things. One is, the surface of one's body gets internalized into one's, um, the structure of one's uh, um, reality as a self, as an ego. <clears throat> um, and my understanding that, of that is the ego is an internalization of the environment. Right? So it's happening in terms of how one's being met, one's happening in terms of what one's needs are. That whole process gets internalized and becomes an ego, a sense of self. So this is really important because what that means is for a young, young person, the ego represents the external world. In other words, the ego is an internalization of the pattern of relationship that's happening and is not a structure being developed in a mind, in a brain. It's a projection of a surface. The surface being, uh, is this making sense, sort of? Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to keep unpacking this. The, the, the ego is an ID that represents a combination of the internal needs of the body and how they're being met from the outer world. <clears throat> so, that's Freud. Then, Jung comes along. And Jung... At the time he met Freud, or sorry, Jung, after he met Freud, um, started to rethink this definition of the ego and built on it. He didn't disagree with it, he just built on it. And the way he built on it was that he felt that while it's true that the ego doesn't exist, see, see Freud is trying to say the ego isn't a thing, right? You're, the center of your personality that you think of as me isn't a thing. It's a representation of your environment projected onto a surface that we call the body. And then that flips as the body then gets internalized as an image that makes you feel like who you are. But that it doesn't exist. It's just a projection. And then Jung takes this further. And Jung says, well, actually, that projection occurs. Oh, she says two things. So first of all, that projection is a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism, first of all. So, let's, so instead of calling it the ego, let's call it an ego complex. And this is where the term complex starts to get developed. Freud had some ideas of complex, but, but Jung's idea of complex, and if you hear complex like a little bit negatively, it, you could translate that word as strategy. It's a, it's, a, it's a personality strategy. Now here's where Jung gets really interesting. Jung says 
the development of the ego once it's created is based on liking and disliking, pleasant and unpleasant. If there is pleasant and there's attachment to the pleasant, there's a sense of self. If there's unpleasant and there's aversion to the unpleasant, there's a sense of self. If there's pleasant and there's no attachment, there's no self. <laughs> so, I'm going to sketch it out. Okay. Can I erase this quote, or do you want me to leave it here? Oh, I don't have an eraser anymore. Okay, so here. So we have Freud, right? Obviously, everybody is aware we could probably spend the whole day just unpacking this. Is you, you should write this quote down and really think about this. It's really profound for meditators. Great. Okay, so um, Jung is saying that the ego is a complex. When something's pleasant and we want more of it, right? So, so there's li like. I like it. When something's unpleasant, don't like, I don't like. Yes? Okay. So, if I'm sitting here like this, okay, and after a while, the knee starts to feel pain. Have you ever felt this in meditation practice before? The knee starts to feel pain. And then, what do you say to yourself when you're sitting? What's the language? I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. My knee hurts. My knee hurts. Okay. What's at the beginning of those sentences? I need Right. So there's pain in the knee. Right? There's pain in the knee. But there's no me. There's just pain in a knee. Okay? But as soon as there's aversion, I don't like it. It's my knee. So there's two me's. There's the knee that's, there's my knee. And then there's a me that doesn't like it. Like it's separate. Like it's separate. Or like when someone says, I don't like myself. Those are three selves. There's an I that doesn't like my self, <laughs> right? This is very complicated. Okay, we're gonna come back to this. Then, the Buddha, um, for yogis, Patanjali says exactly the same thing. Um, the term that we translate as ego, is ahankara. Let's say it. Ahankara. Yeah. Um, 
When an M and a K are together like that, you don't pronounce m ka. You just stick your tongue up in your roof of your mouth and you just go m m. So ahangara. Okay. Now this is made up of two different words. Aham um, is I or me. You could also say mine. And kara comes from the root kur, which we've talked about already, which means to make. So the definition of ahamkara is the me maker, the I maker. What does ahamkara mean again? The I maker. Well, usually it gets translated as ego. Yeah. But I'm trying to show you etymologically how it's saying something that's kind of what both Jung and Freud are saying as well. Which is, if you went to school to study counseling, they would use this term ego to mean what mediates between the unconscious and conscious inner and outer personal social. But actually, Freud and Jung were saying something much, much more sophisticated than that. And the Buddha is also saying something really sophisticated too. And here's what they're saying. Here's what, and here's what the Buddha adds. Is that every moment that arises, we know that you're oscillating between pleasant and unpleasant. We know that there's reactivity. That reactivity is building a me. When we have a sense of me, the me tells stories. When the me tells stories, it reinforces a sense of me. Okay? So, why are we going through all this? We're going through all this because when we are looking at the third foundation of mindfulness, you might think, well, you know, I'm just trying to calm my thoughts. I'm just trying to calm my mind. But actually, there's something much, much deeper going on which is you're seeing that the functioning of thinking is actually a me-making strategy to reinforce a me that actually doesn't exist in space and time. It's just a construction that's based on 64 moments of reactivity a second. Because every second, we're like, attachment, aversion, attachment, and aversion, attachment, and aversion. Yeah. So remember when Molly said yesterday that one of the things that mindfulness does, especially working with trauma, is that they're trying to slow time down, trying to stretch time out? So in mindfulness, we're trying to make space to see this process. So if you take your MBSR course, they will say, like, it's really important that you reduce your stress so you can see thinking and not keep reinforcing thinking. Okay? That's so important. That's so important. However, there is an existential dimension which is equally as important. Which is that when you reinforce the same cognitive habits, you reinforce the feeling of being a me. Yeah. The feeling of a self. 
And where Western psychology and the Buddha's teaching start to diverge is that feeling of being a self is actually at the root of suffering. And no matter how many new stories you create about the self, this ongoing attachment to who you think you are creates suffering. So one day, two monks were hanging out, Carmen and Matthew. And Matthew has on a backpack, and he's going to go on a pilgrimage. And Carmen says, Matthew, where are you going? And Matthew says, on pilgrimage. Do you know this story? I know. And then Carmen says, what's the point of pilgrimage? And Matthew says, I don't know. And there's another story like this, where Bodhidharma says to an emperor, Emperor Liang, um, or the, sorry, the emperor says to Bodhidharma, um, what's the core teaching of the Buddha? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. And then the emperor is confused and says, well, then who are you? And he says, uh, I don't know. Could you imagine this, like being at a party? And someone's like, so uh, who are you? <laughs> it's not I don't know like I don't know. It's I can't know. It's David Bowie saying, when I stop trying to know who I am, um, I'm much happier. So um, I'm aware that we have like five minutes. So, you know, for one of my big defensive strategies is I'm a big thinker. So yeah. And I know I, I need a defense strategy, so I'm going to think. So it's, you know, there's choices that you make. But some people, um, do you not think if that reinforces that sense of I, that's mm -hmm. very reinforcing for mm -hmm. a lot of people, actually, people find a lot of comfort in it. Uh -huh. And so are there not some personality structures that if you remove that, that could be really destabilizing if you realize that? Yeah, did you read the Jack Engler article? I have that chance to Okay, read, yes. so the Jack Engler yeah. article deals with this very, very well. Okay. Um, but I'm speaking to this group here. All right. And for this group... I'm, I'm going to suggest that um, the reason why we need to really focus on the third foundation of mindfulness is not just because we have cognitive patterns that are unhelpful or not creative, but also because we're on a spiritual path. Okay. And this path is about waking up to a reality that doesn't pivot just around me. And we start to see that forgiveness is really hard when it's all about me. Compassion doesn't come so naturally when we're so focused on ourselves. Spontaneity is not so present in our lives when we're constantly in me, you see? Intimacy doesn't emerge when it's me trying to be intimate. And so we're trying to work at that level. And um, those teachings are really great philosophy and we love reading about them, but it's pretty hard to have access to that insight if we're just constantly in um, no, repetitive 
cognitive patterns. Exactly. Yes. Um, Great. Okay. Is so. Neutral difference between like so is neutral difficult because it doesn't create a sense of me. Uh. There is no neutral. No there neutral is. can still create a sense of me. Okay. But we're avoiding neutral in this course. Yeah, and a lot of people do. Yeah, we're just doing pleasant unpleasant. <laughs> Okay, can I do a very uh, two-minute review? Okay. Ahamkara is the meme-maker. What this means is the function of your mind is all the time it's trying to frame what's happening so it can relax and go, oh, that's what this is, and it's happening to me, right? So the ahamkara is always trying to superimpose itself on whatever is going on. Like, even you can be in meditation and have, like, a really peaceful moment, and then the me comes in, and it's being like, I'm so peaceful. Isn't it amazing how peaceful I just got? And, like, this is, like, incredible. And um, how can I make money on it? Right? All the time. Yeah. Or, this happens to me a lot, like, you come home from a retreat, and you're like, how come nobody notices the difference? <laughs> Can't they see? Okay, so that's one piece. The other piece is to see that the ahamkara, the meme maker, is born moment to moment to moment. And the reason why I brought up Freud is because Freud also said that about the ego. That your ego is not a thing you can find in an fMRI machine in a box in your brain. Your ego is an emergent process that's happening moment to moment to moment based on reactivity. That your levels of reactivity are directly related to the... To the um, uh, stickiness of the self. And when you, you reduce your reactivity, your self becomes more porous, more flexible, more transparent, because our egoicness decreases. And whatever else spiritual practice is, it has to be about dismantling our identification with our ego because it's too narrow a way to live and it's really bad for people around us and it's really bad for our environment so that's what we're doing together um, and I'll end by saying everybody in here probably agrees with this as a philosophy but the Buddha is trying to figure out in the third foundation of mindfulness, how you can explore this in your experience when you're sitting still. How can you just start to see it happening and see this isn't just about a lot of thinking or stopping thinking. It's about seeing how thinking reinforces who we think we are. So, nine o'clock. <coughs>
that's most of the theory we're going to cover today. Um, this afternoon are going to be drills again. And um, <clears throat> I hope everybody has a good break. Um, we'll see you in two hours. Can I quickly ask about...